Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. Okay, yeah. So, special guest today. Yes. Why don't you uh, bring him in for us? Yeah. I'd love to. Yeah, so um, my very good friend William Morris is joining us today, not to be confused with thousands of other people who've been made named William Morris, none of whom are my very good friends, but um, William uh, and I have known each other. I'm not exactly sure how long, um, but he invited me to write for his website, Motley Vision, circa 2008. And um, I think it's really thanks to him that I'm as deep into the Mormon letters scene as I am. Uh, I no longer feel like an outsider and uh, that's thanks to William. Um, and so uh, William is here in part on, a, on an exotic international tour promoting his new book, The Darkest Abyss, Strange Mormon Stories, which I highly recommend. And I'm sure we'll come up in conversation. Um, and uh, but any excuse is a good excuse. He's also an alum of the Berkeley Ward. I mean, barely, really more of an alum of the Oakland Stake. But uh, he belongs here. He belongs with us. Welcome, William. Hi, William. Hi, Aaron. Hey, very excited to have you on. Hi, um, Eric. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Maybe where should we start? Why don't you tell us about? Um, How about your... I start? Okay, please. If I could. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In in addition, in addition to William's book, he's been doing a series of email missives about Martin Clark's classic uh, book of essays on Mormonism and the arts called Liberating Form. And the most recent one, which I just finally got around to reading earlier today. Uh, it, so in, in the email, he always includes two recommendations. One is a uh, Mormon arts recommendation, and the other one is just some other recommendation. And the other recommendation this week is, um, or I guess technically last week, I'm a little late, is broad. It's essentially like read something that feels difficult, something you're a little nervous about reading. And I love that because it's really appropriate to what we're doing this week, um, digging into the King Follett discourse, which is something pretty much everyone's heard of, but I'm going to wager not everyone has read. And it's also a great introduction to his book, which includes stuff written in the desert alphabet on the cover um, is called Strange Mormon Stories as a fair warning to anyone who might pick it up and is enormously fun to read. Um, I really love William's fiction. And so William, I just introduced your book. Tell us, tell us why people who have not heard of it should um, take a chance. Yeah. Um, I am this strange creature in the world of Mormon letters in the sense that I have this fondness for both weird Mormon fiction and what Eugene England called faithful realism, which is most people might know as like literary fiction. And so I um, write in both modes, which is not super unusual, but fairly is fairly unusual. And I have, I have um, a, a love for both. And so my first story collection, um, which is called Dark Watch and Other Mormon American Stories, just basically goes in chronological order with stories that started in the early 1980s and go through the present day and then veer into science fiction and go through the next, almost the next century. And so that kind of collection kind of put a stake in the ground for me. But um, after I finished it, I found that I had more to write about and, and more things that were speculative to write about. Things inspired by, for example, the King Paula discourse um, yeah. and some of the other weird areas of, 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 of Mormon theology and history. And, um, and so while the stories are weird, they're strange, um, 
it's hard to kind of really say what the exact genre is. There's some that are somewhat science fictional, but none of them are like super geeky. There's some that have horror elements, but none of them are like serious horror. Um, it's this weird amalgamation of, of various modes and, and genres, but all of them are saying something, I hope, saying something interesting about Mormon history, Mormon theology, Mormon experience, what it's like to be a Mormon living in the 20th and 21st centuries. And, and then also a couple of stories that are alternate history about what we might, how we might have, have, have lived um, if, if things had gone a bit different for us. And um, as I say, it, you know, it gets a little bit harrowing in parts and it gets a little bit difficult in parts. There's a few that are a little experimental, but nothing that is so out there that, that your average reader of fiction couldn't handle. And I don't think you need to be a reader of, of, of genre fiction to enjoy it. At the same time, if you are a reader of science fiction, fantasy and horror, and you want something that really digs deep into kind of the Mormon experience, then I think you'll enjoy it too. Okay, that's really good because um, it's so funny that a bit of what we're going to talk about today in the King Fall discourse is probably fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yes. If you forgive me for saying. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so this, I think it's actually very fitting that you came on today because um, it could be because it's just so interesting to read about um, the King Follett discourse in general. Um, well, that sounds very good. I love sci-fi. I love fiction. Um, it's one of my favorite genres. I usually don't read um, um, historical like stuff. I'm usually all about sci-fi fantasy. And um, the few historical things I've read, um, they usually have some kind of um, mystical element to them. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, should we Let's jump into the, let's make sure we put, put, let's set up the article that we're looking at today. All right. We're using as a reference today, another chapter in this um, magazine article, if you've been following along, uh, by BYU Studies, uh, called um, Yet to be Revealed, Yet to be Revealed, Open Questions in Latter-day Saint Theology. And uh, this chapter today or article, The King Follett Discourse by James E. Falconer and Susanna Morrison. Well, I think we need to mention also what the subtitle is, which is Pinnacle or Peripheral. Oh, okay. That's a good, that's a good way to, that's yes. a good point. Yeah. Thank you. That was what I was going to say next if somebody else didn't. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I love that the answer appears to be yes. It is both of those things. It's also, you know, speaking of, um, alternative should... histories yeah uh such as in williams collection like emma comes and visits salt lake which is a, a fascinating story but um part of the reason the king fall discourse is in the position it's in is because joseph smith dies immediately afterwards there's no published version that has his fingerprints on and so it's in this sort of in-between space between um the doctrine and covenants and other things that joseph smith clearly um approved and the wild, wild west of theology that is the Brigham Young era. And uh, it's, it's kind of in between those two spaces. Well, let's talk about it a bit. Um, we did an episode on canonization way, way back in like season one or two. And um, King Follett discourse uh, featured in it, right? 
But I think, I, I mean, I, looking at the show notes for that and reading this article, there's just, um, we we didn't really scratch the surface of the King Follett discourse, right? So um, somebody tell me what it is first. Just give me a, um, a quick a quick summary of it. Take it away, William. So a member of the church, King Follett, uh, an early convert, dies in March of 1844. And that April, um, in response to a request from King Follett's family, Joseph Smith memorialized him with a sermon. And in that sermon, he goes into a bunch of doctrines, which we'll, we'll talk about, um, that are not completely unfamiliar to, to the members at, the, at that time. But he goes a little bit deeper into them and even gets a little bit weirder with some of them. And um, to, to, to Theric's earlier point, while, while this, it, this sermon is not canon and it, and it is made up of a bunch of different accounts of people who were there, it has been like influential in a lot of the major doctrinal uh, discussions and, and even disputations over the years, um, both starting in Brigham Young's time and going all the way through, through to today. What's interesting when I read this um, article was the fact that I, I didn't really realize how many of the doctrines in the King Follett discourse were already understood by members at the time, right? I had thought that the King that Follett's discourse was kind of like the first time that we hear phrases like about um, God becoming, you know, about, about mankind becoming as God literally, oh, or, um, you know, God being um, a person like us before. Like, I had thought that this was the, where that stuff came in, right? But it wasn't. Well, and I think that speaks to part of this whole issue of canonization, right? Because, because this is a discourse that has a lot of that packed into it, and because it has almost a, a catchy title, right? Yeah. Um, if you are a member of the church who um, sort of gets into other materials, right? So you're not just you're not just learning um, straight out of kind of the manuals, although elements of these doctrines did find their way into the manuals, which is part of the whole story of the of this. Yeah, you'll probably see it within the context of the King Fall discourse because it's the easiest way to say, oh, yes, actually Joseph Smith preached that. It's in the King Fall discourse. And so it becomes a, a not while it's not canonized by the LDS church per se, it becomes a de facto uh, uh, um, sort of wrapper around which all these doctrines can be can be kind of branded and 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 um, expressed to those who are like, oh, hey, where did this come from? Well, how come people are saying that we believe this? Because oh, well, it's in the King Follett discourse. Mm -hmm. It's like effective canonization, but not of all of it. <laughs> there was some stuff I saw in this that I had no idea existed, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> and and stuff that kind of echoes through the future as well. So how do you guys want to approach it? Um, where do you guys want to start? I mean, I oh, think... Oh, go ahead, Eric. I was just going to say, barring a better idea, the order that they're in makes sense. But if you have a better idea, I'm totally open to that. No, I think, and I think we should focus on the the ones, the the items that um, uh, James Falconer and Susanna Morrison specifically call out, 
as being them kind of the more interesting and the more in dispute um, because there are what there are nine items or something like that total. Um, but but I think we should maybe look at at some of the the more unique teachings that they point out. I think that's probably the most fruitful approach. Yeah, that sounds great. And I think we should respect our members of the audience who haven't read the material. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so let's just go through the. Uh... Let's just go through them. So the unique teachings in the sermon, right? So um, these are the things that are really unique and are kind of, oh, no, we can't do it like this. We've got to talk about how the fact that nobody was there who wrote it, like like Joseph Smith wrote it down. We've got to mention that first. Oh. None, the, everything we have is secondhand. It's it's from notes that people made. Yeah. And I mean, people were there and they took notes. But what, yeah. I, what I found fascinating. Well, it's just like um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yeah, that's, that is a solid comparison, Aaron. Especially since we have four people whose notes uh, we rely on. Uh, let's let's yeah. just let's just mention their names, Eric, and then you can take it away. So four okay. people took note took notes, and those four people were Willard Richards, Wilford Woodruff, Thomas Bullock, and William Clayton. So three of these people I know quite well in a historical sense. Uh, Thomas Bullock is is just a name to me. Um, but the other three, the other three are recurring characters in early church history. And what I found fascinating about their analysis is that the final sentence here in this section, um, the fact that all the editors who've worked with the notes end up making more or less the same final version of the talk, which yeah. they say should give us considerable confidence in the text as we have it, even if it is only an amalgamation of notes made at the time. Yeah, compare that to uh, your ye old standard harmony of the Gospels. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that ain't bad that we got this much agreement between all the notes, right? I yeah. think that's... Although, to be uh -huh. fair, if if Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were only the Sermon on the Mount, like it, that might be a more fair comparison. <laughs> that's a fair point. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, they did. They were full biographers. Um, all right. All right, so we don't have a we, nobody. Nobody was a stenographer. Nobody wrote down what actually happened, and Joseph Smith never got a chance to prove it. And so, in some way, it's a very apocryphal kind of writing, right? But as we'll see, it's really not apocryphal. It's exactly a lot of it is exactly what we believe. Um, so the unique teachings is that is that good? Did you want to anything else? On unless that? unless you're saying we're apocryphal. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a good, a good, uh, I mean, it's not untrue, as you'll see. Like, there's stuff yeah. in here that we certainly don't believe anymore, and there's stuff in here that we kind of believe, and there's stuff that we certainly believe. God himself, who sits enthroned in yonder heavens, is a man like unto one of yourselves. Not controversial in our church, right? We got this. You know... You know, I, I have um so I have a question I want to ask, and, and I don't know that we have an answer, even though all three of us serve missions in with three different languages. Um oh where'd you but, serve your mission, William? Uh Bucharest, Romania. Oh, fantastic. Okay, cool. Okay, go ahead. So um it it, it occurred to me as I was reading this section on um God coming from having been a man and men having the possibility to be God, being that that's the sexless men that mm -hmm. I'm using there, people, <laughs> people becoming God. Um, the, I think this part of the reason it's so sticky clearly is because of Lorenzo Snow's couplet. Um, 
Okay, wait. Sticky. Let's use say what you mean by sticky and what the couplet is. So uh, the couplet is as. Um, oh wait, am I, I going to say it backwards? Let me let me just double check. I mean, yeah, it's quoted God right there. Now is man may be as man is God once was. That's yeah. the couplet. And what I mean by sticky is uh, that clearly is something like people can quote that. Um, it would be fascinating to do a survey. Actually, I have a lot of thoughts about surveys and if we did surveys and what people actually believe in the church, but I bet a significant percentage of the membership would hear that and accept it as scripture somewhere, probably in the Pearl of Great Price or the Doctrine and Covenants. It's just so widely known. Like, how can we know that so well if it's not scripture? Uh, and that's what I mean by sticky. People know it and it's and it's remembered through the decades, even as the church is like hesitate a little bit on exactly how much they accept the fullness of the couplet. The couplet remains and it is core and it doesn't disappear. So this gets to my question. Oh, but I was going to say that couplet's not in the King Follett discourse. No, that's Lorenzo Snow's. And, and Joseph Smith said, to, told Lorenzo Snow that it was um, that it was a revelation that he had received. And if I remember correctly, uh, he actually wrote it before the King Follett discourse. Uh, I think I believe, so. Yeah, I the article said that. Yeah, it which was surprised me. Which surprised me too. Essentially, um, what William Woodruff was doing was synthesizing, I think, some of the words from Joseph Smith, right, into this couplet, and then Joseph Smith con uh, confirmed Lorenzo that. Snow. Sorry, Lorenzo Snow. Yeah, yeah. So I think right. the as the article points out, the first part is not controversial at all. Well, interpretation might be in. But interpretation of what that means might might vary. Um, the second one would vary probably depending and, and, and might especially vary internationally. So in, in Romanian, there's not like there were a ton of things translated in Romanian when I was there. I served in um, 1992, 1993, not too many years after the mission first opened. And um, we had, what we did have though, is we had a, couple, a copy of the gospel principles manual. And that gospel principles manual does talk about um, the first part of that idea very strongly, the idea that we can become like our heavenly parents, specifically talking about heavenly parents as, as well. Later editions of the Gospel Principles Manual, the one that came out, I can't remember if it was the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, removed some of that, actually. But certainly at one point in time, many, uh, um, again, depending on the translation, many members of the church uh, internationally who had access to the gospel principles manual, which was one of the first things that was was translated along with uh, selections of the Book of Mormon for languages that didn't have like a uh, a lot of uh, of church materials in them. Um, definitely had access to this idea of, of the Mormon view of theosis. So there is that. The, rever the second part of the couplet, as, as the article points out and, and as Eric alluded to, that one gets a little bit trickier. Yeah, I wish I had clear memories, um, and I don't, I'm afraid, of Korea in the mid-90s of whether this concept was current among the membership. Because what I'm wondering is if, because of the stickiness of the couplet, if this, the closer you are to English-speaking members of the church with ancestry going back a long ways, like the closer you are to that population, I wonder if the more believed the couplet is. That's my that's my question, um, and I don't think we have the capacity to answer that here. But I, I find it a really interesting and possibly important question, thinking about where this doctrine will go in the future. It seems like a pretty good hypothesis because certainly, 
in terms of my interactions with other members of the church who fit the same profile as, as, I, as I have, which is, I, you know, I, um, I have pioneer ancestors. Um, that, that couplet means something. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure that we're clear, though, on a couple things that you said, um, William. You, yeah. you, there's two parts to the couplet. Which right. part did you th- say was more commonly accepted and which was not? The idea that that um, that we as individuals can become like our heavenly parents. And that is called theosis, right? It is called theosis. What is interesting about that word theosis, because it's been used a lot in Mormon circles, I'd say especially in the last 20 years, is that in some ways it steps a bit away from how ra- radical Joseph's idea is because, because there is theosis as a concept in other religions, um, especially in the, in the Orthodox branch of Christianity, uh, which is what I encountered in, in Romanian. They are, they are Romanian Orthodox, or most of the members uh, of, most Romanians um, are uh, members of the Romanian Orthodox Church, whether practicing or not. Um, but that version of theosis is very different from how kind of radical Joseph idea of it is. Can you say, just restate how? Well, how based it is in, in individuals. So it's not just that we become part of God um, in some form in the next life um, or part of God's glory. Um, whatever that means for how we exist as individuals, you know, that varies by different religious traditions. But how, but we actually literally become gods with bodies um glorified bodies but 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 bodies that there are is a plurality of gods right which is the biggest heresy in, in relation to to other christian traditions um and sort of some of the other finer details of what we believe about what are you know how um many of these details are are sort of in dispute or certainly not canon in Mormonism, um, but what we will occupy our time with and how we will approach our relationships and, and what kind of heaven and the afterlife will look like. Okay, this is what I was looking for, yeah. Um, all right, so yes, I, I we have these ideas and they this document is kind of the source of some of them and they've really changed in their acceptance over year that's over the years that's kind of the thesis right and that's where we come down to pinnacle versus peripheral yes but before we move on aaron i want to hear about your mission experience um oh my yeah oh i was in brazil oh i didn't i didn't hear that at all well okay i did hear that idea among some of the of the members of the church there but it was definitely wasn't the focus i was in um you know, there's plenty of um, Catholics down there, but I would taught a lot of evangelicals. Um, uh, specifically in in Rio, there were a lot of the big mega churches down there. So a lot of the people that I, I interacted with were kind of more universalist or, you know, assembly of God, you know, that kind of, of, of real evangelical kind of Christian. And um, I didn't hear, I mean, we didn't really go into this kind of stuff very much while I was down there. Um, I would, I, when I got the opportunity, I did, but it didn't happen very much. It was mostly um, just, doc, you know, the, 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 the idea of 
I remember specifically when I told somebody that we lived before we were born, right? And which is part of part of the King Follett discourse as well, <laughs> that we lived before we were born. Their response was, what? <laughs> that was just totally and completely new to him, um, even though I think he was, you know, he was part of this Brazilian culture, at least whatever his background was, it's totally new. Yeah, I, I just love like anybody who's listening who has uh, more data points about how the worldwide church is approaching this idea. I would really love to hear about it. Um, usually we just promote Twitter and Discord at the end, but we have a Discord channel. Uh, reach yeah. out and yeah. we're all on Twitter. I'm at Thamazings, Aaron's at Aaron Brewster and William is at Motley Vision. Like reach out. Yeah. Um, I think it's a really interesting question. I, I don't have a way to find out on my own. Well, again, the question is, which of these ideas in the King Follett discourse are still around, right? And we're specifically interested in the theosis one. Follows up from our our um, conversation in our last episode, right? About the essentially the progression of mankind. Where are we going from here? Are yeah, we... and we're seeing a lot of the same wishy-washiness that we saw in that one in terms of um, where modern leadership is rhetorically on these questions. And, and I have to say, like, this sort of modern Hellenization of the church um, <laughs> is kind of sad to me because I think the, it's the literalness of early Mormonism that's its great strength and what people attach themselves to. Like, it's so literal. Like, you become a god. Um, we mean it. You will be a family forever. And that's exactly what we mean. Uh, it's that literalness that, that sets us apart. And as we become, we, we, I think we need to be careful about becoming too generically uh, everything is just seems like and appears to be in the way that theosis is in other Christian traditions. Some well, of them I shouldn't say all. Yeah, and, and this is where the, this this to, to um, get back to the project of weird Mormon fiction is is why I think there's both perhaps a hunger for it, but also certainly a space for it, because if if um, if these ideas right are are, are um, not part of official discourse, then that creates uh, a little bit more of an open space for um, both both for, for for theologians, but but certainly also for for fiction. And it means that this whole enterprise of, of sort of speculative theology um, can happen in some really really interesting ways. And and we see that in certainly in my work, certainly in your work, Eric, um, in work by. Um, Steve Peck, uh, Louise Perkins, a lot of the Mormon lip blitz uh, uh, stories ha have done this speculative th theological work. And it's, yes, it's fun and it's cool and it's weird, but I would also suggest, and, and this is part of why, um, why I think the King Follett discourse also persists as this thing is, is it's also part of trying to think through and understand what it means, what it really means to accept a Mormon worldview, and especially a Mormon worldview as, uh, as Joseph Smith and, and other uh, early church leaders sought. And, and what does that mean for us today? And certainly, I mean, certainly my, the stories in my collection really get into that um, in some interesting ways. At some point, and I don't know if this is the right point to do it, I would like to talk a little bit about um, kind of the other side. So we have theosis, the fact that we can become gods. Yeah. The other side is where did we come from and where did we start out with and, and, and the whole notion of intelligences. 
And I found this part, this section of the article really interesting because I, I learned some things I hadn't known about. Um, although it's this whole notion of, of the eternal nature of being and existing as intelligences has, has had a huge impact uh, on a lot of my writing. Okay. Um, I'm ready for that segue if you are, Aaron. I, I'm not quite. I want to go okay. there because I also learned things that I didn't know. Um, but I wanted to kind of put a a, a, pin, a a bullet point on the theosis thing. There's a part in the in the conclusion, I think, that really summarizes this whole conversation. And I just like to read it verbatim, right? Please. So with regard to theosis, the King Follett sermon doesn't explicitly take a stand on what it means to become like God. But the belief has undergone a change similar to that about God's previous history, referring back to whether God was a man like us or not, right? At one point, Latter-day Saints clearly believed that to become like God means to become like him, a creator of worlds. And the article quotes all these early church leaders um, who made that statement, including the Wild West Brigham Young thing that you were talking about, but also, of course, the couplet, right? For a long time, though, church officials and writers have either downplayed that claim or have taken an agnostic position with regard to its meaning. Instead, the contemporary Latter-day Saint understanding of what it means to be like God is usually weighted with terms that would be compatible with traditional Christian discussions of theosis. To become like God means to receive his attributes, to become godly. However, an openly discussed, distinctively Latter-day Saint understanding of exaltation remains the familial or relational aspect that this life can foreshadow. The church's website explains that members see the seeds of godhood in the joy of bearing and nurturing children and the intense love that they feel for these children. So, and I wanted to quibble a little bit about this, all right? So first, this is the point that the teachings have shifted. It used to be very clear, and now it's very agnostic, right, on this topic, right? But this claim that the contemporary Latter-day Saint understanding of what it means to be like God is usually weighted toward this thing of just becoming more godly, I don't agree with that, man. And maybe this is, again, what you were saying, William, about this, this um, upbringing in this more, more traditionally Mormon um, kind of pioneer, kind of like trace your roots back kind of thing. I've always believed in the, <laughs> in the theosis right? And then they, sh then shall be, they be gods, like in the Doctrine and Covenants, right? So I don't know. It's interesting, this statement by our authors, right? By James Falconer and Susan, Susanna Morrison. And this goes back to what you were saying, Eric. I would love to see a survey about this. Is this what really, do people really believe that theosis is just becoming more gooder? I suspect church leadership is still on our side on this one, but uh, getting your own planet has become an easy punchline for the Book of Mormon musical <laughs> or the God makers. Yeah. And so I think that rhetorically they're trying to stay away from it, but the risk of staying away from something because it avoids punchlines is you lose it. Um, like we have to embrace the fact that we deserve to get made fun of. I think um, embrace our weirdness. Like that's, that's where, that's where our strengths lie. Yeah, the danger with official discourse uh, as it's um, conducted in, in, in the 21st century is that you can't, you can no longer say 
this is what we mean to the outside world and then say this is what we actually believe to everybody else. That doesn't work anymore because all the words get out. All the words, uh, you know, get, get onto the internet. And, um, and so this whole idea of agnosticism, well, it, it might be textbook PR and, and I'm someone who works in, in marketing public relations. Um, it is a pre-internet or early days of the internet understanding of what, what PR is. Now the whole notion of, of, of what it means to market yourself or, or to engage in PR is to be uh, honest about who you are and lean into those things that make you unique and different as an organization. I'm, I'm so interested in what you just said. I think what you just said is that like the, the Gordon B. Hinckley quote, right? That says mm-hmm. that we don't really understand what these words mean, right? Mm-hmm. Is PR, right? It is this, um, it is this, what you just said that we, we, what we teach externally is not the same as what we teach internally, right? Yeah. And, I've never and, heard it said that way before. And I think that if you don't mind me saying that could rile up a real um, Gordon B. Hinckley fan. <laughs> well, but, but technically he is correct, right? Technically right. he is correct in the sense that, you know, this is all, this gets back to the whole uncertain status of the, of the King Fall discourse and the way, as this article points out, the way some of these doctrines have been, have changed in understanding and emphasis over the, the past two centuries. But at the same time, um, at the same time, if we don't know or if we are uncertain, maybe we should take steps to become more certain. Mm-hmm. Because it seems to me that 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 if, if we're talking strictly about you know, and this is this is not my domain, right? I I'm in uh, my what I evangelize for is weird Mormon fiction and 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 when and when it's good, faithful, realistic Mormon fiction. Um, and an interesting Mormon culture, but when when you when you don't have a clear let me let me back up. If you have interesting aspects and unique aspects to your history and who you are as a culture and a church and a doctrine, because we don't really have a systematic systematic theology quite, which is both a good thing and a bad thing, as, as I know you all have discussed. Um, why wouldn't we lean into that as opposed to trying to sand off all the edges? And, and the reason to sand off all the edges in the past was, well, you know, we just barely got where we were kind of became familiar or we just barely got to where we were somewhat comfortable within with our status within the United States as we got reintegrated, forcefully reintegrated, although we cer- certainly also wanted it and collaborated in many ways, um, back into the to the kind of the mainstream culture of the US uh, that really happened in like the 1950s and 1960s, of course, and the 60s happened and it completely changed. But we were still kind of chugging along, right? In the 80s and the 90s, which kind of reached its its climax with the, the presidency of Gordon B. Hinckley. And don't get me wrong. I am a huge fan of President Hinckley. Yeah, um, he's one of my favorite <laughs> prophets. Yeah, um, and I think, and I completely understand a lot of the PR decisions that were made at that time. Um, but we've even walked away from the uniqueness of the I Am Mormon campaign more recently, and so, um, kind of that's why that's why that's why talking about something like this, like the King Fall discourse, and whether it's the pinnacle or peripheral, is important. 
because I don't think that understanding Mormonism and understanding who you are as a member of the LDS church, as well as someone who is a Mormon, because it's something that we pretty much all are, even if we don't see ourselves as that, if we say, oh, I'm just a member of the church, but then I'm also this, I'm also an American, I'm also a Brazilian, I'm also a Romanian. That's not how everybody else sees us. And so why not leverage those things that make us who we actually are? Which isn't to say that we should adopt every single uh, doctrine that, that's found in the King Quality <laughs> Discourse, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um. I know this is a bit of a distraction, but I'm so interested in what you said that we don't have, what was the phrase you used? We don't have a cohesive theology. You didn't say it that way. You said we don't have a systematic, a systematic theology. Can you just, for my own edification, just explain what you mean by that? So um, because we're a young church and because we believe in continuous revelation, uh, we don't have a systematic theology in the same way that other, some other religions do, especially Catholicism, where there is, um, we don't have, we're not a creedal church, right? We don't have creeds. Um, a lot of our commentaries are, um, you know, not widely accepted or not widely known. We just don't approach our religion for the most part as something that is that, is, that has a, a, a theology. Now we have doctrine and we have and doctrines and, and policies and theologies kind of all get mixed up together, both for good and, and for ill. Um, and there are some who would say, well, you know, McConkie's Mormon doctrine is that's what it is, but it's not really not. It's not, it's not using the same approach as, as if you were like a philosopher or a theologian. And so we really don't have an existent um, Mormon theology, so to speak, as, as, as an academic would understand it. Huh. That's really interesting. I mean, it goes back to the, our opener for the season, right? About what, what is doctrine and how it's hard to even figure that out. Yeah. And what this whole, this whole uh, issue of BYU studies is about, right? Yeah. Okay. I love it. Um, let's, let's skip forward down a little bit. Um, (laughs) here we go. The mind of man. The intelligent part is co-equal with God himself. It exists mm-hmm. upon a self-extent. Sorry, I don't even know how to say this properly. Um, it exists upon a self-existent principle. This is one yes. of my favorite doctrines. <laughs> no big bane of intelligence. <laughs> um, yeah, all right. I remember hearing a talk where... This was a devotional. It was on tape. It was on somebody had a copy of it on my mission. I listened to it. My mind was blown by it. Right. And the idea behind it was there are things which act and there are things which are acted upon. Right. That's a Book of Mormon scripture. And um, those things which act are called intelligence. Right. And those things which act are, are acted upon is more like matter, I think, if I remember right. And then when Christ said something like water be wine, right? He was speaking to intelligence in the water <laughs> and it be- and it obeyed, right? Uh-huh. And the reason it obeyed was because Christ c- could, c- could command that level of respect from those intelligences by being the perfect and atoning person that he was. 
right? Yes, that's a super Mormon thing that you will not hear in general conference. (laughs) (laughs) Mormon physics. Mormon physics 101. I think that's what this quote is getting to, right? Am I wrong? I was not thinking about it that way, but that's probably included. William? Yeah, I mean, it it specifically is specifically refers to uh, our origins as individual as individuals, right? And and so there's this divide in Mormonism that the article talks about between this tripartite model that was B.H. Roberts' idea, where we were intelligences that always existed. So we are we are co-eternal with with God. We're not co-equal with Him necessarily in the sense that He was way advanced beyond us in terms of His intelligence and knowledge and wisdom and 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 all those great godly attributes. But but. But we ex- have always existed as, as intelligences, and then um, our heavenly parents came into the picture and and um, created us as spirit children, and then and then that gets into the whole plan of salvation as as we know it and and teach it, um, and, and so. The, but the question is 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 well, is that right? That is a model that I grew up with. Turns out there's another version of that model. Another version of that model is is that is that um, matter that has intelligence to it that is kind of always existed or um, because you know we know that uh, matters neither existed nor can it be completely destroyed in in Mormon physics. Um, it existed, it was not an individuated mass of intelligences there that was just kind of existed. And then our heavenly parents shaped it into us as spirit children. And that's when we became individuals. And so that was another strand of Mormon thought that was that, that, um, that the article mentions. And so there's these kind of two competing models. And then it gets even more weird in particular than that. But okay. um, it's so funny to me that you said that the one that you hadn't heard of was the second one, right? Yeah. The one that I hadn't heard of was the first one. Yeah. It really depends on how you grew up, right? And and I grew up with both simultaneously and have sort of in a non-systematic way, like negotiated making them both true this whole time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. I just want to restate them. So the first, so we have two models, right? One is that we always existed as spirits. As intelligences. As intelligences. Yes. This is the Some tripartite. sort of difference there. Okay, this is the tripartite thing, right? Where we had intelligences, spirits, and then physical bodies, that, right? That's what you meant by tripartite, right? Correct. So we're like this little nesting doll of Nesting of doll, okay? <laughs> I don't think I had ever heard that before. Or Pokemon that evolved from one to the next level. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot and of this... Pokemon in my house right now. <laughs> good, good on you. <laughs> there needs to be more of those in the world. Um, and the second one was that intelligence is like a putty <laughs> yes <laughs> and that An endless could, putty that you can form spirits out of right you and just ob- take a bit yes ob- that was the charles enough, that's what i heard that was the charles w penrose and anthon h lund model according to the article um, bh roberts was the, the first position there's i don't remember the details of it there's another kind of somewhat Another model that, that somewhat diverges from the B.H. Roberts model, but is somewhat similar to that, that was, the, that was, I'm trying to remember who was really into that. It was one of the early um, Well, there's probably, probably Pratt's, not probably yes. Pratt, Orson it Pratt's. Was, Orson, Orson Pratt's, Pratt. who, who was the great God, who believed, yes. we talked about this last time. And that okay. was, um, 
that one also I had never heard of before. And it it has whispers of both of these, right? Where um, our God is like formed from the greater God. Um, yeah. where the where the where the where the greater God is like the sea of godliness that is forever. Um, this is uh, something you might want to edit out because it's needlessly confrontational, perhaps. Yeah. Um, but I'm wondering how either of these theories works with the opinion some some church leadership had in the Brigham Young era that um, women, you know, resurrected women become literally pregnant and that's where spirit children come from. Like, how how does this how do either of these concepts function with a um, resurrected pregnancy? I wonder. I'm, I imagine they must have written about it, or maybe they didn't. But um, it, there's no way I'm editing. Work I'm, well I, I, there's no way I'm editing anything that you just said out because everything you just said was bananas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I agree. I'm not. I don't want to be on record as supporting these ideas. Uh, right. I have no idea what just happened. Well, um, and there's there is obviously debate over whether that whether they literally meant that is is this is a word that I'm going to get wrong. The vaporous is that the word, basically involve, involving a womb, or is or if there it's another form of, of creation. Um, I really like if we want to go with that, we can we can go go that down that a little further. But um, and, or maybe this is actually kind of related to that. I really liked it was interesting this quote by Brigham Young saying talking about how internal matter is brought together, organized, and capacitated to receive knowledge and intelligence. That whole idea of, of being capacitated to receive intelligence is very interesting to me, both in terms of, 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 of kind of just Mormon, from a Mormon, Mormon doctrine perspective, but also from a, a speculative fiction or theology perspective. Like you could do some really interesting things around capacitating items to receive knowledge or intelligence in relation to things like information theory, um, I mean, I think Steve Peck gets into that a little bit in Key to the Science of Theology. Is that, I think that's the title oh, of that book. I haven't book. read that, but he does, it comes up in his fiction too. Yes, for sure. And there, um, especially as it relates to things like aliens and AI, sorry, this is getting us way off track. And then also there's this, this is great very book. face and hat. Yes. There's this <laughs> great book that is not necessarily, doesn't have any overt Mormonism in it but is very Mormon. It's by John Durham Peters, who is one of the foremost communications theory academics around and is LDS called The Marvelous Clouds, um, which get it, gets into some interesting ideas, uh, getting back to things that are acted upon or, or act that relate to communication theory and things like nature and weather where it's not as simple clear cut as there are these higher intelligences that act upon other things. We're all part of the system and we're all acting upon each other and trading information. Um, it's, it's a lot like, um, the, about, well, I was gonna say Gaia. Um, um, we have um, leaders of our church that in the past have talked about the earth like being an intelligence on its own, mm -hmm. right? It's very similar to what you just described. If the earth will be suffering. resurrected, yeah, the earth is suffering, and if it's going to be resurrected, it suggests it's on the same journey we're on. Yeah. Um, what I what I like about this conversation is 
unlike the one that we just had about theosis, right? Which I feels like I feel like that really matters. Understanding my destiny and understanding like who God was and where he was, because that influences how I can relate to him and my heavenly my heavenly parents. To me, that matters to me on a fundamentally personal level. Like that that influences my soul, that influences my thoughts, that influences my prayers. This stuff about intelligence is nonsense. <laughs> and it's really fun, right? But has like no meaning at all. Like I don't get anything. I, I really enjoy it, but it but I can look at it and and laugh a little and say, whatever, we'll figure this out. Yeah. I, so I, one of the, I wrote down a question in relation to this, which is what problems does the concept of co-equality of existence with God solve and what problems does it create? So this is this does have meaning, though, in the sense of the whole okay. idea of who are you? Uh-huh. Are you an autonomous individual? How did you get that autonomy? Um, and what does that mean for your relationship to other beings as well as to God? Okay, well, I appreciate you trying to sell me on this, um, <laughs> <laughs> because it's something I've always enjoyed talking about, but I've never really seen the relevance, right? Like why it would matter. So let me just see if I can re- what, if restate what, you, what you're asking me. Wait, can, um, I, can I broaden his question before you yeah, do that? Yeah, go ahead. Um, so not only just like our spiritual brothers and sisters and God, like, but also potentially if the earth has an intelligence, if wine has intelligence, uh, potentially our interactions with everything in our environment, then like, is it, is it, is, did it have that individual individuality forever? Or is it just something that was made for convenience? Um, it kind of changes the shape and the purpose of, of everything on the planet and in the cosmos. It does. But I don't think what you're saying is what William was saying. Let me see if I can no. explain what you just said was, is a good argument for, um, environmentalism, right? If, I think if, so. the, if the objects and things around them, like, <laughs> this is so out there, actually have some kind of, oh my goodness. You know, I have friends who are scientists. Okay. If, <laughs> if there are things that go out there that, that have intelligence, right? I don't need that kind of justification to be an environmentalist, right? That's okay, right? So um, whether or not the intelligence of, of that is that is out there and part of matter is something that can be like interacted and is real. That doesn't change how I'm going to interact with the world around me. I'm still going to be in an environmentalist, right? And I think William, you were trying to say something different. Yeah. Why don't you say it again? So let me put it this way. Who we are is the most fundamental question we can ask. Certainly, I believe that you should ask that question in relationship to the annihilation of God. Others don't because who we are also has an impact on who we can become. So if we really can't become gods, is that only because God has completely granted us that and we are just completely his beings created by him or is it an opportunity that he's given us? Let me, let me put phrase it a different way. If you believe in a, tripart, a tripartite view of being, then there is something essential that's you and that's always been you. The only way to progress, though, was to receive a new interface. That interface was your spirit body, right? You became spirit children, and you entered into a society of other spirit children, which then led to that kind of progression. At some point, that progression was no longer enough, and thus we have 
all that's bound up in the method is mortality, right? The mortal experience of, of having a body. And then, as we believe, then there's another phase with a different interface, right? And so, um, and so, the, so then that the, the question is, is, am I just a series of interfaces or is there something that's essentially me? And I don't know that, that we can answer question. that question. I don't know that we can answer that question. I, and, and it also relates to things like agency. So I'm gonna talk about my work again, sorry. Um, this is not <laughs> in the darkest abyss. This is in um, uh, Dark, Watch. Dark Watch and other Mormon American stories. I, I, I wrote a short story called Return or no, release, sorry, it's called release. Um, for the Mormon Lit Blitz you, Blitz, you can actually read it for free online um, at the Mormon Lit Blitz website. And um, in it, there it, it takes place in a very dystopian future society where um, it's very corporate controlled, everything is controlled. And the spirit has un gone underground so much that it has gone to the autonomic level. And people minister to each other via pheromones. And the story is about a, a, a man who didn't realize that he was a bishop and got released from being a bishop. And some folks did not like <laughs> that view of, uh, that I presented um, because they thought it abridged agency too much. And, and I totally get that. I mean, again, it's an extreme. It's what you do in science fiction. You take a, an idea and you take it to the extreme. On the other hand, part of the reason I wrote it is because I am worried about our future as Latter-day Saints, as members of a Mormon culture, as just a people in a society. And to me, the most hopeful thing I could come up with was, well, you know, the spirit's gonna find a way, meaning the Holy Ghost, because even though we are these mortal beings, we also have an intelligence and a spirit inside of us ourselves. And there are gonna maybe be ways that we can interact even if everything outside of us doesn't let us interact in that way. And so again, these questions of, uh, so, so how do I put this? There's a cynical reading of this notion, uh, especially the B.H. Roberts mo model of us always having existence, which is kind of ties into modernism and capitalism and that we're all these autonomous selves, right? Um, and and, and, and um, just kind of, floating around and being acted upon by the various forces of capitalism and modernism and disconnected from everything and uh, only kind of out to kind of to um to satisfy the needs that the, and the desires that advertising creates for us i mean that's a very dystopic view of things right but it's not necessarily i mean when we talk about materialism that's kind of what we're talking about and uh, um um, but I don't know that that reading needs to be cynical because the whole idea is we have this kernel of ourselves, but we need the interface in the society to actually become more than ourselves. And, and so I find it affirming because on the one hand, it affirms individuality, but also makes us realize that there's this whole model set up for us to, to, to be more than the individual that we were when we were originally in intelligence. Now, does my whole view of... of, of my whole worldview and my uh, and view of Mormonism change if if that's not the case and it's the Penrose Lund position or something else, not really. Um, but it's for me something interesting to think about. So I just want to reiterate, I had no idea about this entire branch of Mormon theology until I read this article. 
and your description of it kind of, of bringing it into fork focus, I can actually see echoes of it. I've, I've never believed that I was an intelligence that always existed. I've never, I've never, I've never, how did I miss this? Is this, is this a failing on my part? Because <laughs> when no, you're saying I don't it's, think so, it's, essential. <laughs> it's so interesting, right? It is such an interesting way to look at it. But it, let me, let me, let me tell another story. So I have someone who I've inter interacted with online for many, many years. He's, he's agnostic, truly agnostic, not, not an atheist that says, well, maybe he's truly agnostic. He, he has studied other, studied numerous religious traditions. Um, and he finds the Mormon conception of God horrifying mm -hmm. because, because it's so embodied and it's so, he's like, that's just completely cruel for if, you know, if God can, can make us gods and if, and if, and if, if he, if he is truly a heavenly father and he can act on this world and yet he allows all this, you know, the whole problem of evil, right? And, and that's a complete sidetrack. That's, that's, a, that's a different discussion, but I'm, getting, but I'm getting to it. He has, or had at one point, I have not asked about this, an envelope with a bunch of cut up squares to form a puzzle that he has sealed away in his house somewhere. And he says, if there is a God, God will basically make that puzzle for him. And, um, it, it, you know, coming from someone who has always believed in some sort of God, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But it gets to, I think, something that is, that is what is so both scary and, 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 and interesting and hopeful about believing in a different power is, is like, okay, who am I? Why do I exist, right? And, um, and so, if, you know, if, if God is just someone who, who's going to prove himself by making a puzzle, that's one thing. But if we are co-equal with God, then, then this whole notion that God has set up this sort of plan for us that to some people looks like this strange game, maybe even a cruel game, to me that a little bit falls away quite a bit because because it means he's not inflicting it on us. It means that he didn't create us just to make us run, jump through all the hoops. He helped us evolve in our creation. And we chose it and we, ch we chose and continue to choose at various points, whether we participate in the various interfaces that he gives us to interact with the universe. Sorry, that was a lot. No, it was good. Yeah, I'm sorry. My, I'm, I'm just trying to absorb all absorb all this and think about it. Um, Do you want to think out loud, or shall I comment? Go ahead. Um, this is what I find, I, William. You've articulated articulated it so well. What what I find really compelling about the idea of having been individuals of some form when we were intelligences. Um, this I and and it explains where. The, the reason I've heard this as like vital to our theology in the past is that it explains where agency came from, because we are our own persons and always have been, um, although we don't really have any idea, any way to articulate what an intelligence is, like that individuality has always existed. And so that's why we've always had the choice to, um, to accept, um, you know, will we eat the apple? Will we come to earth? Like all the, we have the option because we are not automatons created by 
the great clockmaker, but we are ourselves and um, we're growing within the framework that works. And, and this ties into like why to me it is important that God was once like us because uh, he's doing this from experiment, like from experience. He, this is not some, let's try and see if this works. Like this is, this is a tried and true method of creating gods. And that's attractive to me. And I think that that works better if we were individuals prior to being spirits, even if we had no identity. Yes, much more ah. succinctly stated. <laughs> I just, I can't believe it. I've mine. How, how did I get 44 years into the church and always believe that I was formed out of intelligence that preexisted meant that I had no thinkingness before then. <laughs> and I'm not, and I might be oversimplifying, oversimplifying. It could be that I never really thought about it. Right. Very hard. You know, Aaron, uh, it seems to me that at the end of this season, we should revisit some of these questions. You, sh you should make a running list of questions we should revisit. Like, how does Aaron feel about the silly putty model versus the individual model of intelligences when, you know, in a <laughs> couple months from now? <laughs> and again, I don't think understanding either model or believing either model is essential. Um, but I do think if you're, if you want to, you know, we talk oftentimes in the church as if we've answered these, these core questions of philosophy and religion of who are we, who is God, why do we exist, what will we become after this life, you know, what happens after death, why does evil exist in the world, why does pain and suffering exist, what was the role of Jesus Christ, and, um, and to a certain extent, yes, all those Sunday school answers are, are helpful and, and interesting and, and valuable and correct. But they don't necessarily capture everything that happens. And again, I'm not a philosopher, but I have dipped a toe in here and there. They don't actually capture necessarily all the, we just create basically new problems. Um, and new and deeper questions and further questions. And there is no, of course, answer because we're mortals. We're stuck in, 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 in mortality and we don't know everything. But part of the reason why something like the King Fallout discourse is interesting and why it matters that we have, and it's great. The other thing is it's great that we have these two different models and people disagreed because it means we don't have to like say, oh no, it definitely has to be this one. It allows us a space to go, okay, well, if this is were to be true, then what would that mean? And it might help us better understand or at least come to terms with notions like agency and being and you know the problem uh, of the existence of evil. It also gets to, um, I think there's a real danger in just accepting the simple answers, like delving into questions that we can't answer um, is a different type of religion. And I think a valuable one, not for everyone in every moment, sometimes in everyone's life, we need simple answers that we can hold on to. But, um, Speaking of, of your most recent missive, William, you, um, Clark was talking about the danger of easy religion and how he was seeing in Utah Mormon culture at the time, um, looking for easy money and easy answers and easy religion, everything's easy. And um, I think that it is important to grapple with hard questions. And just because a job pays well doesn't mean you should do it. And just because, uh, you know, we believe that we existed before we were born doesn't mean we understand all the details. And and I think part of being a, a Latter-day Saint in the Joseph Smith model is 
really diving into things we don't understand. And that's where we'll learn the new things and the valuable things and the things that um, affect us really deeply. Yes. Let's um, wrap this part of the conversation up just by reading again, the conclusion in the article. If you guys are ready for that. Sure. Yeah. Do you want to do that again, or do you want to hand it off to somebody else? Oh, I can read. Um, okay. Here's what it says. With regard to the self-existence of intelligence, the essence of a human being, this is a doctrine on which there appears to have clearly been not just a shift in attitude, but a shift in belief. And I'm going to, I think I'm going to feel a little justified after reading this. <laughs> in the 19th century, intelligence was generally assumed to be a kind of unindividuated material out of which individual spirits were made. By the 1930s, the official position on whether intelligence is eternally individuated was that we don't know. By the 1960s, many Latter-day Saints, perhaps most, believed that intelligence have always existed as individuals. And by the 20th century, the latter seems to have become the predominant, though not exclusive, view. So I'm actually not justified at all. <laughs> Unless what I'm saying is that I, I got some relic of the past in my education. Just to support this conclusion, I wanted to read the quote by Elder D. Todd Christofferson in 2015, okay? Prophets have revealed that we first existed as intelligences and that we were given form or spirit bodies by God, thus becoming his spirit children, right? And that was um, uh, in 2015 in a talk called Why Marriage, Why Family? <laughs> And um, darned if it isn't general conference, I probably heard it. <laughs> I got no excuse at all. If it makes you feel any better, when, when they say the latter view seems to have become the predominant, I don't think necessarily the predominant means every right. Latter-day Saint believed it, but yeah. of those who had opinions on it, <laughs> it was the more common view. Yeah, that's good. That might be a better way to put it. I, I also love suspect it. that there's a limitation here in their methodology. Uh, I wonder if you could do, you know, a Google search on every diary that was written by a Latter-day Saint in the last 150 years, if we'd get rather different numbers. Right. That, that's the other tricky thing is, is if you're only looking at official forums for discourse, whether those are church or academic or various intellectual journals, that's not necessarily going to give you the folk doctrine point of view. Um, and the folk doctrine point of view is very interesting and, and can be fun and is also um, has has led to many interesting works of, of, of Mormon literature. Yeah. Um, we so we're going to talk one? about vampire babies now. Yeah, yes. let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I had not thought of that, but it's exactly like the little girl in interviews from a with a vampire. OK, <laughs> it's Kirsten Dunst in her in her first breakthrough role. OK, yeah. Wow. I missed yeah, that wait. as well. <laughs> yeah, take it away, William. I might just read or, or paraphrase from the from this be so from the from the uh, the actual BYU studies article. It says with regard to infant resurrection, there has been a turn in the church's understanding of Joseph Smith's teaching about the resurrection of children. Well, let's just quote the 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 King Follett discourse where he said this, right? Okay. Children who die young will be resurrected 
as they were when they died and yes. remain that way eternally, though they will sit on thrones of glory. What? Right. So the, it's on. that remain that way that, that, that leads me to, 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 to make the, the vampire children. Um, yeah. Can, can, I, can I read Brigham Young's real fast? Yeah. So oh, did you wait, wait, wait. Did, did you finish your quote that you were reading there, William? No, no. Yeah, go, go ahead, Eric. Okay. Um, you will see, Brigham Young says, you will see the children of three, four, and five years old possessing all the intelligences of the angels of God. Could you not enjoy the society of such interesting beings? <laughs> um, also, th that really bothered me because I, that suggests that whatever you are when you die, that's what you are. And um, I've reached a point where my foot has been hurting for no good reason for two months. And, um, oh, no. and uh, yeah, like, um, I don't really want to be resurrected at whatever age I am, which it seems to imply, right? If, if babies are re resurrected as babies, and they just become boss baby, then yeah, yeah, that suggests no matter what age you well, are, that's what you're resurrected as sort of it, by implication. They just, they just become boss baby. Yeah, and it only gets worse, Eric, as you age. Um, I'm a, a little bit older than the two of you, just a little bit. Um, and oh it's, my goodness! It's not you have the fun. entire '40s covered here, I think. Yeah. Um, so, and, and and we should state right now that that what the article says is this view has not persisted. In fact, it says this view was likely mistranslated. <laughs> Wilford Woodruff um, said that he wrote it down wrong, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and he, I think he was the only one who wrote that down, right? Um, yeah. uh, it says Woodruff, the very person who recorded the part of the Keenfall discourse about resurrected children, which implies he was the only one, I thought. Oh, the claim is only from Woodruff's transcription. There it is. Okay. So this this is not supported by multiple witnesses. There's no, but you know, two or three witnesses on this on this particular point. But the more interesting point is, is obviously we as individuals was a society original idea. And it seems like a lot of church members did as well because what has been taught um, since then has been a little bit different. It's more that, um, I mean, the way I've heard it is, and I think we've heard this actually also in conference talks of- Recently. Of that recently is that, is that, is that children who, who die before the age of eight will be resurrected as children in the millennium and then grow to the age of whatever the optimal age for us is. Um, some people claim it's 33 because that was when um, Christ uh, died and when, when he was resurrected, you know, but basically some sort of uh, adulthood. Um, and so um, be interesting to think about or you know, obviously the whole idea of vampire children in popular culture is a little bit more recent phenomenon, this, this switch in doctrine. But I think there's something to, um, I brought it up not just because it because I wanted to make a joke, but because I think there's something to the uncanniness of that that, that, that says something about, um, about how, to, how that doctrine was received and has been, has been, um, has just evolved. Feel right. Yeah. Well, um, it's interesting because we, we haven't used that doctrine. To, I mean, maybe we have. That doctrine doesn't feel right. Isn't the isn't the best? Is it the best way to look at doctrine? <laughs> well, I mean, isn't that way? You know, search it out in your own mind. Like, isn't that kind of how we decide all things? Is does it feel good? I that's kind of what. That's kind of what I'm trying flippant, to. But I'm what I'm trying to drive at. It's kind of what I'm trying to drive at. It's just that. Um. It seems like so much of these other ones have really stuck around and they really sing to us, right? 
right? But if one of them was less popular, <laughs> maybe. Well, and I, and I don't, you know, I don't want to get hung up on the on the, on the original one, um, especially if it was not recorded completely correctly. Yeah, or, or uh, but the whole notion of the resurrected of children has stuck around and has been pretty popular. And and you know, one of the things that the that the article points out, which I think is important, is that is that this sermon was preached as a consolation. Right. Yes. It was meant to console the family of King Follett and those who participated. And certainly this is a teaching that I've seen offer a lot of consolation to many many members of the church. I mean, maybe I should step back for a second and just ask myself, is this weird? Like, am I too close to this to see this as to not see this as weird? Um, that we believe in children being resurrected as children. Honestly, it feels less weird than children being resurrected as adults does to it me to me it does i mean i i get i get, or do you mean I old people being resurrected as young people no because i feel like it the resurrection is supposed to bring you back as you were that's what alma teaches and you can't be brought back as something you were not yet okay well, well it, I, I like that definition yeah and it points to the importance for latter-day saints of embodiment right mm-hmm. um this doctrine says a lot, I think, about its importance or um, that, that because the notion is, is that, is that during the millennium that, that, that these children will have an opportunity to then gain experience in a body and it'll, it won't be the same mortal body, right? Um, but it'll gain experience as a body and, and grow and learn and develop um, from the point where, where, they, where they passed away to the point where they become full-fledged adults. And so there and so that so that it does indicate that, that we believe there's something important about the experience of growing up as, you know, in a physical environment as opposed to being just a spirit. Isn't there something something Plato that we could say here? Platonic ideal of an object, isn't that a thing, mm-hmm. a philosophy thing, right? What is an apple? Well, everybody knows that there's a platonic version of that, right? Isn't right. there a platonic version of me that is just the most fabulous? And it's obviously when I was 21, when I had just gotten <laughs> home from Brazil, when my hair was still sun bleached <laughs> and blonde, and I was, you could, and I was fit. <laughs> right, but the uh, you know platonic <laughs> ideal is is a form, right? It's the it's the ideal form, you know, in, in Mormonism. This is again, this gets back to why we're if why it's so appealing to, at least to me that we are all individuals eternally eternally individuated is that 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 means something and so um and so you know now i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna let's talk about a story in the darkest abyss okay because this is something this is not as like completely king followed but it's something that i've been thinking a lot about and it has to do it does relate somewhat to the whole idea of the resurrection of children so the the last story in the collection is called the mormon writer visits spirit prison and in it a um a faithful member of the lds church who has died uh, and becomes a missionary just like joseph smith tells us that, that, that that will happen visits four different writers who are in spirit prison. One who was a member, was born a member of the church and, and, and left, a, left the church during mortality. And then three who, who, um, who were never uh, Mormon in, the, in, in mortality, um, but one of whom was a Christian and has these conversations with them. And the, one of the things that I, um, 
thought about with this, and, and one of the reasons I was interested in writing about it is it's what happens to your mind and to your being when you've had a body and you no longer have it. And we've heard people talk about, oh, you know, that 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 it's one of the lessons that, that or one of the things that gets taught is that you should learn as much as you can here and also not pick up bad habits because not having a body will make things, it'll make the habits that you have, the addictions that you have worse when you're in the spirit world because you won't have a body. And also it'll be harder to learn there. And mm -hmm. so if we take that seriously, what does that mean for what missionary work looks like or even just interactions look, look like in, in spirit prison? And so, so each of these individuals are at various states with, um, with kind of how, what has happened to their mind um, as a result of, of being a spirit. Um, after having had a, had a body and, and been in mortality, including one who's kind of gone very, um, I wouldn't say like insane or mad, but his, his, his mind is really kind of twisted into where um, it's just all about kind of all the associations that, 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 that he can remember from kind of when he was in, 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 in mortality. So he basically, the way he speaks is he kind of goes from association of one piece of pop culture or something that he read or saying that he heard to another. And um, and and because I find it interesting, like what is it gonna be like over there? What are we, I mean, we, we, you know, we have a sense of what we're gonna do, but what's gonna happen to uh, our sense of self and, and our minds and how we talk to each other? I don't know why, and, oh, sorry, William. What I'm saying, part of the reason why I think it's, why the resurrection of children is, is, is um, is a consolation is because we want them to have those experiences that kind of are unique to mortality of grow, you know, of having a childhood and having an, an adolescence and coming of age and becoming an adult. Those I think we see as meaningful. Yeah, all, all I was gonna say is, and this is a total aside, but um, speaking of your story, it fits into a trend I've noticed in Mormon literature recently in the most recent mm -hmm. issue of Eriantum, and we talked about this in the last episode, is Daniel Cooper's Visiting Dante in Spirit World. And yep. Scott Hill's collection, Hemingway in Paradise, has a lot of stories of what people are doing in Spirit Prison and Spirit Paradise. Yep. Um, it's, it's something we're interested in right now, and I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's um, feeling unsettled. Yeah. There's a lot of writing right now about the afterlife in Mormon literature, and I interesting and there's a lot of really good the examples i just gave are excellent so add them to your reading list after you read darkest abyss yep yeah it was i was like uh um when i saw that scott was publishing that that's what his collection was like i was like hey wait a second oh there must yeah there must be something in the zeitgeist because um i think it's because how do i put this I'm also interested in depictions of what happens to us during the millennium. And there's a story that kind of gets at it, although it's, it gets complicated because it goes back and forth between, uh, across time, um, but isn't a time travel story. Um, but I think you're right, Eric, in the sense that, that um, well, I think we sense our own mortality more than maybe we did as opposed to the imminent coming of the, of the Lord. Um, probably true yeah unfortunately <laughs> yeah um okay well i kind of feel like that's a show <laughs> <laughs>
You know, oh. can I can I add one thing real quick about the King sure. Paul discourse? Yeah, it was interesting to me. Um, it talked about how. George Albert Smith in 1912, if I remember correctly, talked about how the King Vault discourse couldn't be canonized because we don't quite agree with everything, um, which was interesting to me because I had been thinking kind of regularly. In fact, I may have said it on the show in the past that wouldn't it be great if the King Vault discourse was um, canonized. And so some of these tertiary doctrines that are so important to us can be doctrine. But but now I kind of feel like George Albert Smith because um, the whole babies thing, like uh, like they endlessly the endless children, uh, like, no, like, I, I don't really want that to be canonized. <laughs> so I guess I've come around to George Albert Smith's feeling by the end of this article. Oh, well, I totally, I, I kind of hadn't thought of it that way. And I kind of agree with you. I, I remember we specifically made a claim in that early episode, right, that we would like this to be really thought about, about whether it could, should be canonized, right? But this kind of in-depth analysis of what's actually in there. And especially the part about how it says that a lot of these doctrines were already understood to be true and were really kind of confirming them. Not all mm -hmm. of them, but some of them. I kind of agree. I'm maybe I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, it has been over 20 years since I've read the Keen Follett Discourse. So I also feel like maybe it's time to dive back in. And the version I read was uh, Joseph Fielding Smith's version. So I don't know if that included the vampire babies or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah it I, could be that there's an edited version of it that should yeah. be canonized what i would like to see and this is i guess you, you, part of my entire cultural project is i don't think we need things to be canonized but i think we need to be much more interested in those things that aren't canonized Amen. and that there is a lot of value to be found in in them uh, and and that value may vary <laughs> and um but, you know, in, instead of seeing these things as just, you know, I say, well, yes, I, I'm interested in weird Mormonism. I write weird Mormon fiction, strange Mormon fiction. But to me, it's not meant to be strange so much as it's meant to be part of a conversation with the rest of the my Latter -day, fellow Latter-day Saints, with God, um, with the past, to figure out, okay, who are we and, and what do we believe in and, and, and where are we at right now? And what can Mormonism, what can we learn from Mormonism right now that can help us envision where Mormonism can be as we figure out how to deal with this mess of a world and, and what our place as Latter-day Saints and, and um, some of us purveyors of Mormon culture um, in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Which is the value, honestly, of science fiction. And your stories are good examples of this, of, of imagining what a slightly different Mormonism could be. Because there's no question that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the people who live according to its tenets are not going to be the same in 2050 or 100 years as we are today. Like the world is changing around us. We are changing uh, ongoing revelation, et cetera. Uh, it's going to be different. And what might that look like? And we can be deliberate about that. We can be intentional. And 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 um, as even as individual members, uh, you know, the whole church, like if everything's acted and acted upon, then we're all touching each other and having an effect on what the future is going to look like. And we can we can be we can be a little smarter about that, maybe. Yes. And the world is only going to get stranger. And so we need to be well equipped to think about Mormonism and Mormonisms and even um, 
our practice as Latter-day Saints um, and what and how the the, the church itself um, what it believes how it conducts itself and, and I'm not talking about any single doctrine or policy in particular I'm just talking generally um, you know we, we face challenging times and very strange and weird times and um, we are not in the same place that we were in the late 1990s where it looked like okay we're on a trajectory back where we're going to become acceptable to the broader United States. And we're all going to be in this, um, you know, the Cold War is over. It's the end of history. It's all going to be great. We're just going to like, <laughs> you know, wrap, wrap it all up. Wrap, we're just going <laughs> to coast on and, um, and make money and spend money and hit the check marks, the boxes along the way that we're supposed to as, as good Latter-day Saints. And there won't be any friction and there won't be any twists and turns and things won't get scarier. Um, but things have always been scary. And, and, um, and society has always had its twists and turns and its oddities and its strange things. And, and so if we can you know, create more spaces where, where we try to deal with that, and especially in ways, I think culture is a great space because um, you, know, you could read the stories I write and say, well, this is not doctrinal. You could certainly do that. But you could also read and say, okay, what, what can I learn about being a, 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 even a faithful Latter-day Saint, someone who is, who is, um, who is interested in, in maintaining their relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? What can I learn from this that might make me a little bit more open or um, interested or um, innovative? in the way I approach my beliefs and the way I relate to others. Um, yeah, you're here. <laughs> I always never know how, how to, how to just wrap it up without sounding lame. <laughs> you guys have good words. <laughs> well, we made it to the end, everybody. Hey, <laughs> time to take our faces back out of our hats. <laughs> there you go. Live our lives. <laughs> uh, okay. So um, I'd like to thank again, um, William, thank you so much for being on our show. And I think you did a good job of convincing me that the intelligence thing is important. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell us again the name of your book and where we can get it. The Darkest Abyss, Strange Morn Stories, available on Amazon as both trade paperback and uh, ebook form. Yep. And your website is? MotleyVision.org. And follow you on Twitter at the same handle. Yes. I'm Aaron Brewster on Twitter. Eric is? I'm amazing because it's amazing. I am. I noticed that William called you Theric at one point. Yes, during the, uh, um, I did. <laughs> it, no, no, that's totally fine. Like, um, it's when we started doing this, I'm like, I should be Theric on this, but like, Aaron doesn't know me as Theric, and so yeah. So it's yeah, really funny. Um, yeah, maybe when we do lit things, I should try to make you say Theric. <laughs> that's great i honestly <laughs> use both especially when talking about you in third person i will switch i'll go back and forth depending well, on it's, who I'm talking it's to only fair because in fact we should tell aaron when he writes the show notes that's to spell william out because you also yes. deal with having two identities and um, i do people mixing them up i do yes <laughs> as opposed to wm capital w correct lowercase m correct um we're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. You should go find other shows. And um, we'd like to again thank uh, Nate Calder, who was our sponsor for last week's episode. Um, go read his book. <laughs> um, I got my copy. I've started reading it. It's fun. Beyond the Witch's Wood, book one of the Kingdom of Adair. 
And um, thanks to Daniel Foster Smith for our music. Any other thoughts on the way out? Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. All right. Thanks for coming. Thanks. All right. Bye, folks. Bye. Bye.